Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Peter Felicia, who is the author of a new work he calls The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements. As a prolific theater journalist and critic, Peter has written for Playbill, Theater Mania, Broadway Select, Encore, and many, many more. And you can hear him weekly on the Broadway Radio podcast, This Week on Broadway. Most significantly, he is the author of five previous books about Broadway, including The Great Parade, Broadway's Astonishing, Never-to-Be-Forgotten 1963-1964 Season, Strippers, Showgirls, and Sharks, A Very Opinionated History of Broadway Musicals That Did Not Win the Tony Award, Musicals MVPs, The Most Valuable Players of the Past 50 Seasons, Broadway Musicals, The Biggest Hit and Biggest Flop of the Season, 1959-2009, to and finally, Let's Put on a Musical. I've known Peter for many years, and it is always a delight to talk with him. As you'll hear, much like me, Peter has never been shy about sharing his often very passionate opinions about Broadway musicals, both past and present. We don't always agree, but I am always fascinated to hear what he has to say. Here we go. So welcome, Peter Felicia, to Broadway Nation. I am so happy to talk to you today about your new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements. Thank you. It's an unusual book, which is what I really like about it. It's not your typical book about the Broadway musical. Most of your books come from a very distinctive sort of around-the-corner point of view. Is that something you consciously try to make happen? No, no, but I'm not surprised to hear it works out that way. This all started (laughs) because I was in a bookstore and I was in the sports section. I'm very fond of sports. I've even done a book on baseball. And I saw a book called The Book of Boston Sports. Sports arguments. Who was the better left fielder, Ted Williams or Carl Yastrzemski? In hockey, who was better, Bobby Orr or Ray Bork? In basketball, who was better, Bill Russell or Larry Bird, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, ooh, this should happen with musicals. So that's actually how it started. That's interesting. And you dedicate it to musical theater fans. Oh, yeah. What kind of musical theater fans in particular did you have in mind? Well, I have to admit, the 
given the fact that I'm no kid and I'm one of the first baby boomers, I'm certainly more interested in people who are aware of the golden age. I'm not coming down hard on what's happening in the 21st century, but nevertheless, people <laughs> who were there in the 60s, well, let's use a title from the musical All American. We speak the same language. We don't have to name any names, but were mm-hmm. there specific people you had in mind? Oh, sure. Yeah. Because I've had so many arguments with so many people along the way. And there's a very famous cartoon of Nixon and Kennedy when they were running for presidency in 1960. At first, they're shown sword fighting elegantly. The next panel shows them with boxing gloves on. And the next panel shows them with clubs dressed as (laughs) Neanderthal men killing each other. We've all had those discussions with our friends and people we've just met. Sometimes they're fencing and sometimes they're clubbing. Certainly, I have a great number of arguments with a guy named Ken Cantor, who was in Phantom of the Opera for a number of years, about the musical Ankles Away. I mean, just from the title, Ankles Away. I mean, really, does that sound like a great piece of art to you? It certainly doesn't to me. It was musical in the 50s, and technically, it's the first musical that could have been nominated for a Tony Award as Best Musical that wasn't, because that was the first year that they had multiple nominees. For the first few years of the Tonys, the musicals were just given a winner, Kiss Me Kate, Guys and Dolls, King and I. But that season of Ankles Away in the 50s, they finally had categories, and Ankles Away officially is the first one that wasn't nominated. I'm not surprised, given some of the titles of the songs and what some of the songs do. There's a song called Nothing Can Replace a Man, which I list as one of the five worst songs in musical theater history. It starts with the verse, Rogers and Hammerstein claim there is nothing like a dame. Rogers and Hammerstein claim there is nothing like a dame. Their opinion is so their divine. Their opinion is so divine. Now, look, they were good writers, but their opinion is not divine. Why is the word divine there? Because the next but one is going to be mine. this one is strictly mine. I hate when the tail wags the dog in a musical, when the rhyme comes because you need it, not because it's a logical thing to be said. We've got oleo to take the place of butter, saccharin to take the place of sugar, vitamins to take the place of bread. But nothing in this world can replace a man. And one of the lyrics goes, Throughout the world of science, no one's found a new appliance that ever can replace a man. Well, you and I know you can buy one at a drugstore for $4.98. <laughs> I mean, what's the problem? I don't know that I would fall on Ken's side, but I do find that cast album a guilty pleasure. I think it is one of the most trashy, fun musicals tra- you can possibly yes, listen to. Yes, indeed. One can look at it that way. Absolutely. I just find it trashy. And that's why we're <laughs> debating, disputing, and disagreeing. Exactly. Dacron cloth to take the place of woolen. Samsonite to take the place of leather. Light bulbs that replace a summer tan. But all throughout the world of science, no one's found As you sort of allude to in your introduction to the book, unlike political disagreements, musical theater fans, Broadway fans, can have these disagreements quite heated and have a great time doing it and all go out for a drink afterwards and be great friends in spite of those disagreements. The thing that illustrates that best was my late great friend David Wolf, one of the smartest guys I ever knew who cared about musicals. Anyway, we went to see Once on this Island, the original production of Playwrights Horizons. Now, it had no intermission, so neither one of us knew exactly what we felt about it 
the end, I turned to him and I said, this is the best show in town. And he said, oh my God, no, there's a million things wrong with it. So we're coming out of Playwrights Horizons and we're getting more and more loud. And we're out in the street now and we're yelling and screaming at each other and yelling and screaming. My girlfriend came to meet me. She was petrified we were going to kill each other. And we're yelling and screaming. Finally, he said, but thank you for taking me. And I said, yes, of course. And we went right back to screaming and yelling. I mean, so <laughs> yes, indeed, those do exist. And I never convinced him otherwise. And I'll still stand by, in my opinion, that Once in this Island is a terrific show, as is borne out by its revival. It's being a Disney movie. I mean, well, anyway. I side with you on that one. Absolutely. Oh, good. <laughs> By the way, I'm delighted you know Ankles Away. I mean, that really shows that you've been paying attention to original cast albums over the years. Oh, I was one of those strange kids that was obsessed with them. The other people are the strange ones. (laughs) The other people. I insist. I mean, for example, I always say that while in 1964, when everybody was listening to the Beatles sing She Loves You, I was listening to the cast album of She Loves Me. So um, we're not the strange ones. They are. Go on. (laughs) Well, you, of course, remember those heady days when you could go to the remainder bins and find cast albums for, you know, pennies. I don't remember what they cost, but you'd be collecting those brand new cast albums that you would chase after. I remember things like Jimmy I found in one of those remainder bins and a lot of those flop shows sometimes from that era. Sometimes the side cut off at the edge, sometimes a hole punched in them. But yes. indeed, the records themselves were still fine and all that. Yes, I remember picking up Quamina, a 1961 mm-hmm. musical for 49 cents. And I also remember arguing with a guy in the same store where I was buying Quamina for 49 cents, the Tenderloin, a 1960 musical, was 349. And I said, look, you know, they're both on Capitol Records, you know what I mean? Blah, blah, blah. He wouldn't give in. So I had to pay 349 for Tenderloin, which was worth it. It's a great score. Bach and Harnick. And what I love about the book also is that you really run the gamut between the most recent shows, the shows from the golden age and before, and also the off the beaten track, fairly obscure, even to musical theater fans, fairly obscure shows. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of people have said that to me. And they put it nicely. They said, I've learned a lot. I didn't know about those shows. For example, The Fig Leaves Are Falling, a show that lasted four performances back in the 68-69 season, which I later caught in a reading and I thought really had a lot of worth it. So I certainly mentioned that. And Fields of Ambrosia, a show that has never played Broadway. It was recently in Beach Haven, New Jersey. It started in New Jersey at the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick and then went to England where it was decimated. Some of the worst reviews I've ever read in my life. You know what's interesting about that? They really came down on the lyricist for writing The Fields of Ambrosia, where everyone knows you. The reviews kept on mentioning that. And there is a much worse lyric like that in the current musical in London, Back to the Future, My Utopia. I forget what they rhyme with. It's really, really a very unfortunate lyric, and I wish I could remember it. I saw the show just last month, and that's why it struck me. But, you know, where were they now when the rhyme was not perfect and they made a big deal of the other ones? Well, some standards have not stayed high as they used to. We used to have perfect rhymes all the time in musicals. They were expected, and now they don't seem to uh, come up nearly as much. And I know that is one of your pet peeves, and we'll return to pet peeves at the end of the discussion, because your final chapter is all about pet peeves. Yes, I suppose it is. (laughs) So talk about the structure of this book. How did you decide to structure it? Well, I just did it, I guess, off the seat of my pants, and then finally (laughs) I noticed the structure later. I mean, I'm one of those people who used to write the term paper and then used to uh, do the outline, it really was, oh, oh, I have a number of questions that have to do with the Tonys. Therefore, that's my chapter. Oh, I have a lot that have to do with performers. There's my chapter. 
You have seven chapters, and each of them starts with the idea. Read down those chapters for us. What are the seven chapters in your book? Sure. Debating the musicals, debating the personalities, debating the Tonys, debating the songs, debating the recordings, debating the movie musicals, and then two last questions, which defy description, I guess. But I really wanted to uh, get them in, even though uh, they could be categorized, but I thought it would be fun to set them apart. And I assume this is made up of subjects that have come up over the years, and you finally gathered them all together. Discussions you've had with various people, as you said, about the Tonys, about each of these topics. Yeah, the thing is, I have to say that there's a guy in baseball named Bill James, and he's written a lot of books about baseball, and he's really even defined the way you could determine who's a good baseball player, aside from just the average that we usually see, you know, like Ty Cobb was the best. He hit 367 over a lifetime. But Bill James looks at things in a different way. And one time I heard him say, there's not a moment of the day when I'm not thinking about baseball. And frankly, there's not a moment of the day when I'm not thinking about musicals when I'm alone. I mean, you know, obviously, if I'm uh, at a show, I have to pay attention to review it. When I'm with people who know nothing about musicals, as I mentioned in the book, those are called children of a lesser God. Um, then indeed, you know, I don't think about But when I'm walking down the street, believe me, I'm thinking about musicals. And that's why so many of these questions come up. So let's delve into these chapters, if you sure. will. The first chapter is debating the musicals. Mm -hmm. And you start with one of my favorite mental games, which is the time machine? Well, yes, I do ask the question, uh, if there were a time machine, what would you go back and see? And I'll never forget interviewing Nell Benjamin, the lyricist of Legally Blonde. We're talking, we're talking. And in those days, I still used a cassette recorder that had a 30-minute tape on each side. And when the tape clicked off on the second side, that was an hour and that was fine. So it clicked off and I said, well, thank you. It was nice talking to you. And she said, wait, 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 wait. I'm told you always ask people, if there were a time machine, what would you go back and see? I have my answers ready. Aren't you going to ask me that question? So I am rather famous for asking that question. I love doing it. I will tell you that the number one answer tends to be Follies, the original production of Follies. Of course, I don't get that answer from people who did see Follies back in 1971-72. But yes, indeed, that's the number one answer. Merman and Gypsy is two. Streisand and Funny Girl is three. West Side Story is four. Brigadoon is five. That surprises me. Showboat is next and Lady in the Dark. Those are the ones that come up time and time again. So that's what I hear. Mine would be The Cradle Will Rock on opening night because I love The Cradle of Rock. I mean, that 1964 revival cast album with Jerry Orbach is really terrific beyond belief. This crowd here, hiding up there in the cradle of the Liberty Committee, upon the topmost bough of yonder tree now, like bees in their hives, the lords and their lackeys and wives, a swinging rock of I, baby, in a nice big cradle. Then they remark, the air is chilly up there, the sky beetle-browed, can that be a cloud over there? And then they put out their hands and feel stormy weather. A birdie ups and cries, boys, this looks bad. You haven't used your eyes, you'll wish you had. That's thunder, that's lightning, and it's gonna surround you. No wonder those storm birds seem to circle around you. Well, you can't climb down and you can't sit still. That's a storm that's gonna last until the final wind blows. And when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. 
But more to the fact, you may know the story that on opening night, it was a government-sponsored production and the government decided to shut it down because they felt it was a little too radical and there was a steel strike going on. It was about people who were maneuvering the steel strike and so on and so on. So they shut it down on opening night. People got to the theater and found the theater padlocked. John Houseman, later famous for The Paper Chase, and Orson Welles, later famous for Citizen Kane, who were partnering on this thing, said, no, we are not letting this go. We are going to open. We're going to find a new theater and that's going to be that. Gene Rosenthaler became a very famous lighting designer, was just a gopher at that time. They said, go find a piano, get a truck, get it on the truck, keep on turning around of the street, and at some point we will tell you what theater we have. The theater they had was quite a distance away. It was the Venice Theater, no longer exists, up near 59th Street, I think. They were in the 30s. They got a whole group of people who had showed up for opening night, and as time went on, people were walking up the street and people were saying, hey, where are you going? Oh, we're going to go see this play. Oh, can we come? Yeah. So this whole parade came, and the Cradle Rock went on. Not the way you expect to because Actors' Equity had a rule that if the government said no on a government-sponsored project, you couldn't do it. So the actors couldn't appear on stage. Ah, but they could appear in the audience and stand up and sing and speak when they had to. Mark Blitzstein, the composer-lyricist, was at the piano on stage playing. He wasn't a member of Equity, after all, and so he could play, but only piano. And you really got to admire Olive Stanton, who was the first person who had to stand. She could have said, ah, and I am telling you, I am not singing. And maybe everybody else wouldn't have done it, too, but her courage. I'm checking home now call it a night gone up to my room turn on the light well the funny thing is that ever since then the cradle rock has tended to be done only with piano Right. And ironically enough, there was a production, I think at City Opera, many, many years later, where they used the original orchestrations. And it sounds so funny to me now when I hear that. I mean, I like it better with just the piano. Hello, baby. Because as we've all Hello, learned, the thing you hear first is the one you tend to like best, you know? So, uh, so that's the way it worked with me. I'd like to give you a hundred bucks, but I only got 30 cents. Say, would you wait till I catch my breath on account of it's so immense? Make it a dollar. Honest kid, Nix, that's all I got, 30 cents. Go on, make it 80. 30 cents. 75. I said 30. Come on, big boy, don't be that way, half a buck. Listen, you, I said what I mean, 30 cents, get me? What's the idea? Hey, let go my arm. Listen, big boy, I'll be nice, come on, let go big boy, my don't arm. be a sap. Yeah, Listen, I know. mister, Lay please, now you know I Try to rush me, huh? She's a dick. So that's your time travel choice. That's my first choice. But the way the book is structured, as you well know, but I'll tell others, is the fact that I did it like the Tony Awards. Nominees and a winner. And usually I did five. Sometimes the Tonys do five, sometimes they do four, but I went and been a little more generous. So I have four other examples. For example, I would have loved to have been at Another Evening with Harry Stoons. Listeners are pardoned if they've never heard of it. It was an off-Broadway review that starred the unknown Dom DeLuise, Diana Sands, who had already been in Raisin in the Sun. But more importantly... Barbara Streisand. And if we saw that show, we'd say, hey, that kid's really got something. Gee, isn't she terrific? You know, I mean, it wouldn't be much longer before Broadway would discover and I can get a few wholesale, really only a few months away. Then, of course, two years later in Funny Girl, and there was no stopping her after that. But would we have said, oh, she's terrific? Or would we have simply said, oh, she stinks? And would she stink because the material did? I mean, one night. I mean, you know, so, but I would like to have been there. I love that you provide these options. I assume there are things you considered, but if you only had one choice, it would be Cradle Will Rock. 
Yeah, if I only had one. A couple other items that you deal with in that first chapter are the best musicals of each decade. Yeah, a lot of people have taken issue with this. I mean, for example, that I didn't mention Music Man. You know, it was... It's not that I love Music Man less, it's that I like West Side Story more, probably. But, you know, as the musical falsetto says, depends on the day. And if we're another day, I might have chosen Music Man instead of something else. And, you know, another thing, too, a lot of these things have to do with who you were at the time when you saw them. In uh, 2000, when the millennium had come to an end and new one was starting, Terry Byrne from the Boston Herald listed the 100 greatest plays of the century. Great. And there were ones you'd expect in there, you know, Long Day's Journey into Night, sure, you know, I mean... Death of a Salesman. Yeah, Bell Book and Candle. Bell Book and Candle. I'm not saying it's a bad show. I've never seen it. I've seen the movie. You know, I'm not saying it's a bad show, but would you put that on your hundred? And I figured what must have happened is she saw it as a kid. She loved it. She'll always have a place in her heart for it. So as a result, that's why it made the list. We all have those and we always will. And you also talk about the most underrated in each decade. For me, that was even more interesting. Even though I said at the beginning of the book, don't look for plot synopses because you can get those in so many other books. The fact is with the underrated musicals, I did. And I only chose one from a decade. I didn't do five for that. I just wanted to do one and really give it a lot of time. Let me say this. Whenever I see an adaptation... I always try, I don't always succeed, but I always try to look at the source material before I go. I think it's one of the reasons why I like Kill a Mockingbird by Aaron Sorkin much more than many other people did. I read the book. I watched the movie just before I went. I always do it just, I mean, I have the movie almost famous here. I ain't watching it until the night before I go. The thing is that I watched the movie of Rocky just before I went. That made me see that they made so many decisions that I thought were so much smarter than indeed were in the movie. One example out of hundreds, or maybe dozens anyway, they made the fight on January 1st. That's not in the movie. Okay, why is that significant? Because now it's New Year's Eve and while everybody's having a great time on New Year's Eve, he and Adrian are in their house petrified that he's going to get killed tomorrow or blinded tomorrow. I mean, you know, really, that's dramatic. Sylvester Stallone didn't do that in the movie. But the powers that be that wrote the musical certainly did. And my hat is off to them for doing so many things like that. that They really looked and deepened. The musical Big was not a success, but they did a very smart thing. They asked a question that was not asked in the original movie. Hey, if you were a kid who was making all this money, had his own apartment, had a girlfriend, was having sex, was respected by the company leader, the CEO who thought you were the sun and the moon, why would you want to go back to school where teachers are going to tell you, sit down, I'll give you detention? You know, why would you? They gave a good reason why. The reason was in social situations, that's where he failed. When he met his girlfriend's friends and they all thought, whoa, this is strange. You know, how come he's not So that was very smart. You always are able to pick out these, and maybe, as you just said, because you watch the original just before you see it, those things are very fresh in your mind as you are seeing this different version. And notice that you said, and this is not a flaw, I'm not pointing out a flaw, but notice you said you always watch, because there was a time when I always read. You know, (laughs) so many are made from movies, it is a case of watching. And, you know, a lot of people quarrel about the fact that movies are being made into musicals. As long as they're good, I don't care where they come from. You know, it's fine with me. I don't have any bias against movies turned into musicals. Just give me a good show and I'm happy. I'm with you. Musicals have always been adaptations of something. Yeah, Yeah, usually. And and we have very few comic novels or even plays that could be adapted into musicals these days. Those aren't being written. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. I mean, so many 
many commercial comedy, well, a show like Bell Book and Candle used to get produced all the time. And I think there were just too many of them in the 60s that opened on Thursday and closed on Saturday. And I think that's why they just, oh, another reason why sex comedies, and there used to really be plenty of them, disappeared is because movies got more frank by the end of the 60s and cable TV came in. But if you really want to deal with saucy issues and salty language, it was a time when you could only get it on Broadway. And I think yeah. that's one of the reasons people went there. Now they don't have to. It surprises people because people now think of Broadway as a family audience venue, which was never the case until yeah, very, very recently. For better or worse, as I always say, when I was a kid, what I loved about Broadway was that it was sophisticated adult entertainment. Now that I'm a sophisticated adult, I have to go to Broadway for kids' entertainment. Yeah, you know, I, I really wish that it had been a case where we educated the kids in a way that they would appreciate the type of stuff we did have, as opposed to give them what they're used to. We really can't blame audiences because so many of them come from concert mentality. They've attended a lot of concerts, and so they just think of these shows as concerts with a couple of words sprinkled in. So now when the lights go down, they start cheering immediately, as they did in concerts. We never did that. We waited to, <laughs> to applaud later. We'll see if you deserve it. But there is an enthusiasm that can't be faulted at the beginning of a show. But there's no question that people got very nervous because in the 80s, things were getting pretty bleak. People weren't going. They said, well, look, you know, I mean, they're just not responding to what we're doing. You're just going to have to address the issues. And rock music came in far more plentifully. That's what we have now. And it's pleasing most of the people. And this is what these things are about. It's about pleasing people. I'm hoping, of course, that what happened 100 years ago, there were show calls, The Princess Shows, and they were silly. They were fun, but they were silly. And then somebody said, the musical theater's got to grow up. And it did. I'm hoping that in a few years, I don't know if I'll live to see it, but somebody will say, we can do better with these musicals. We can have stronger themes. We don't have to pander to children. And I think that's going to happen. You'll live to see it, David. You're much younger than I, but I won't. We'll see. I hope that's true. Who knows? You'll Who probably knows? be around as well. <laughs> replacing ventilation. TV sets replacing conversation. Mambo has replaced the old can-can. a tip and you can bank it there is no electric blanket that ever can replace a man. don't go away peter and i will be back with more right after this quick break hi this is david armstrong and it's my great pleasure to welcome factor as a sponsor to broadway nation this week this spring you can eat stress-free with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. 
Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com bn50 and use code bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code bn50 as in Broadway Nation, bn50 at factormeals.com bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You talk about the controversies that you would like to have been a fly on the wall to have overheard or witnessed. What were some of those? Well, this 15-year-old Stephen Sondheim going to his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, with this musical by George, and he said many times, I was going to be the first 15-year-old to have a show on Broadway. He always talks about the fact that Hammerstein said, it's the worst thing I ever read, and his lips started trembling. He said, but I'll tell you where you went wrong. That's where I would have liked to have been. Sondheim never says, and he told me that I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I have to do this. He he didn't ever say that. I'm sure he did in essence in many essays or talks or what have you, but he never specifically said, and on that day, here's what I learned. One, two, three, four, five. So I would like to have heard that. I would have liked to have been a fly in the wall when Patti LuPone read in a newspaper that she wasn't going to be doing Sunset Boulevard in New York, that Glenn Close was. Andrew Lloyd Webber didn't call her and say, Patty, you know, we're going to make a change. We're going in a different direction. He didn't do that. I have a feeling that Patty LuPone has a temper, and I think it would have exhibited itself in no uncertain terms at a moment in time like that. And even much more interestingly to me, from a creative standpoint, when Porgy and Bess opened in Boston, it was four hours long. And Ruben Mamoulian, the director, said to George Gershwin, we're going to have to cut. We're just going to have to cut. George Gershwin wasn't thrilled about cutting. But when that show arrived in New York, it was 45 minutes shorter. But I would have liked to have seen them duke it out in Boston Common. I'm from Boston, so I know where they would have been, right across from the Colonial Theater. I would have liked to have been a fly. They do have walls there, stone walls, so I could have been a fly in the wall. So those are some that would have really appealed to me. That would be fascinating to see how they negotiated those cuts. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, you know, in terms of the fly in the wall business, I've asked this question of a lot of people and they misunderstand what I mean. They often say, oh, I'd love to be a fly in the wall on opening night of West Side Story. No, I mean, people are watching West Side Story. You don't have to be a fly in the wall. You could have bought a ticket. What I mean is you are where nobody wants you to be where you're not supposed to be. That's what I mean by fly in the wall. A conversation that nobody else got to hear. Right. A private disagreement. Right. In the debating the personalities chapter, you delve into to a subject that's in the discussion right now, which is which Broadway personalities are most deserving of having a theater named after them. I was so disappointed when there was the memorial service to Harold Prince at the Majestic, where indeed Phantom of the Opera has played since 1988. I fully expected a Schubert executive to come out at the end of the show and said, by the way, from now on, this is the Harold Prince Theater. There's now a, I don't know if we'd call it a referendum, but Carol Burnett has been lobbying to have that exact same thing happen. And great. However, it should have happened before 
before now. It should have happened at least at that point in time. And, you know, the funny thing about that, back in 1974, Harold Prince wrote a book called Contradictions. And in it, he, the producer of Fiddler on the Roof, said, I don't think any show is going to run longer than Fiddler at 3,242 performances. I, I, I just don't see it happening. Little did he know he would direct a show that would run four times as long. Pretty interesting. Little did anybody know. Little did anybody, you know, but it makes sense why there are longer runs. I'm going to talk about something pre-pandemic. I'm not saying right now, because certainly the Broadway theater has been injured by that. But pre-pandemic, you have to understand that tourism was at an all-time high. 44 million people a year would come to town. Back in the days when Fiddler was happening, it was 16 million. Now, the theaters are basically the same seating capacities. Yeah, they've added a few chairs here and there to maximize, but they're basically the same size. But the tourism is bigger, so as a result, shows are going to run longer. So you really can't compare that Fiddler only ran close to eight years. The aforementioned Ken Cantor, you know, he was in Phantom. He said, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't believe that My Fair Lady ran six years. Little did I know I'd do far more than that in Phantom Opera. So long runs have changed. Chapter three is all about the Tonys, disputes about the Tonys. And of course, you delve into everyone's go-to disagreement, which is who should have won the Tonys in any particular year. What stands out to you of those arguments? What are the most germane ones, I guess? Well, 1959 was before my theater going time, but it's still hard for me to believe that Mary Martin would best Ethel Merman as uh, best actress in a musical. I remember friends saying, well, she must have been awfully good. That's all. You know, she must have been awfully good. I mean, really, Rose and Gypsy? I mean, really, people love that part. I mean, how many revivals of Gypsy have we had? And we're going to have more. The Sound of Music's only had one Broadway revival. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that everybody knows the movie and you can watch it at home. But still, you know, Gypsy has a movie too. You can watch it at home. But all things considered, that's the one that I'll never quite understand how it could have possibly happened. Maybe because it opened so much earlier. It opened in May. Sound of Music opened in November. The awards were given out the following March. So it was reasonably new. You know, now, quite often with us Tony voters, what they do, if a show opened early, they invite us back. They want us to see it again because they want that vote. And I know I've changed my mind here and there, having seen a show a second time, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And another thing, too, people grow in their roles. I mean, some don't, but some do. A good example is Katrina Lang, who in company was very good when she started out. She was extraordinary when I saw her again at the end of May. So extraordinary. That's the beautiful thing about live theater. And it's the beautiful thing about disputing a disagreement, because we are the only group that can say, if we argue about a performance, I thought she was wonderful. I thought she was terrible. Well, the night I was there, she was wonderful. You know, with a movie, you can't do that. You know, same thing. We often settle arguments that way. Well, the night I was there. Exactly. Those words have come out of my mouth many times. I, I name sure. the people, but there are certain controversial performers, fantastic performers who are not consistent all the time or in certain roles aren't consistent. And it really did depend what night you saw them do it. Oh, that's so true. And I'm not going to mention a name, but there's a very famous star who's won two Tonys. When she starts a run, she's extraordinarily good. But as time goes on, and in a way, this is to her credit, she wants to experiment and she wants to try different things. She doesn't want to give the same performance. And one can understand that. However, I don't know if you remember when you took the SATs, they used to say to you, if you have a hunch on your first answer, that's usually the right one. If you think about it too much, you know, go with your gut. Well, the first choices that she made were always the best choices. As time went on, she made choices 
choices that I thought were far inferior. And really, one time at the last week of the run, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. She was truly atrocious. I'm not saying who. Don't say. We'll guess. I'll have my audience send in their guesses. Yes. Who was the luckiest Tony winner? Oh, no question. Peg Murray. She won the Best Supporting Actress for uh, Cabaret. Fraulein Kost, K-O-S-T. I defy too many people to say, oh, yeah, yeah, Fraulein Kost. She's the one who... No, 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 no. She's Nobody really knows who she is. She was the prostitute. She has something like 13 lines. She does start the song Tomorrow Belongs to Me at the end of the first act. Which, by the way, was the end of the second act in Boston. How could this tiny part win? Well, because that was the year of The Apple Tree, which starred Barbara Harris, Alan Alder, and Larry Blyden. And they basically were the whole show. It was a three-act musical. Each act was a different story. In the first act, there were only three of them. Nobody was supporting at all. The second act, yes, indeed, there was a chorus. The third act, a chorus. And it was a small chorus. And it was a small chorus. For the day. Yeah, you bet. So nobody's going to be nominated for Best Supporting Actress there. Okay, another show that season? I Do, I Do. Mary Martin, Robert Preston. That's it. Nobody else in it, so there's no supporting actress. This was the year the cabaret surprised everybody. I mean, nobody expected cabaret to be anything that year. After all, look at God Almighty. The people who had written the score had written Floor of the Red Menace, which limped through 87 performances. The director was Harold Prince. Yeah, Prince had great success as a producer. But up until that point, he'd only had flops as the director. The book writer Joe Masteroff had never had a hit. So it looked really bad. And that year, I mean, my God, Mary Martin, Robert Preston, produced by David Merrick, who produced a low dolly, directed by Gawa Champion, who directed and choreographed a low dolly. That had to be the big hit of the season. No, no, no. The Apple Tree by these guys who had just written Fiddler on the Roof. Wow. And the hottest director at the moment, Mike Nichols, is going to direct. My God, this has got to be a smash. Oh, but let's not forget Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mary Tyler Moore, Richard Chamberlain, David Merrick again. Abe Burrows wrote Guys and Dolls and How to Succeed, directing and writing the book. How could any of these not succeed. And it just goes to show you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen on Broadway. The sure things aren't necessarily sure things and the sure flops are not necessarily sure flops because Cabaret wound up running longer than all three of those shows put together. Amazing. I also love that you bring up the idea of if the Tonys had a category for best song, what would that song have been? I mean, really, Hollywood does it, and Hollywood has done it almost from year one. I think the Oscars started in 27, 28, and by 33, they were giving an award for Best Song. You mean to tell me that an art form that actually gives out a Best Musical, the Oscars don't give out a Best Musical, your Best Picture, your nothing. You mean to tell me that nobody thought along the way we should have a category for Best Song? When you think of all those songs through the years, I mean, obviously, Hello, Dolly would have won that year, even though People was the same year, but Hello, Dolly was a phenomenon in 1964. It was the first number one record that Louis Armstrong had had since 1937. You know, I mean, nobody expected the song to do anything. And it charted above the Beatles, didn't it? Yes, yes, it did. Indeed, a few weeks it was number one, and that was the heyday of the Beatles. Hello, Dolly, this is Louis Dolly. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. You looking swell, Dolly, I can't tell. You still growing, you still growing, you still going strong. I feel the room sway while the band's playing one of our old favorite songs from way back when. So take. 
So you have a chapter all about debating the songs and you deal with issues like the greatest duet to end act one, the greatest song to open act two, the funniest songs. Talk about the best songs that were added while the show was out of town. It's pretty amazing to see how many shows have songs added out of town or during previews. As Sheldon Harnick always says, you do some of your best writing under those circumstances because now you're seeing the performer on stage and you say, ooh, she'd be good doing this, she'd be good doing that. By far the greatest one ever to be I'm Still Here from Follies, which was written in Boston hastily. And the thing was, I remember seeing Follies in Boston before that went in. And there was a song called Calapoy Foxtrot. Funny song, because you really got the impression that the singer, Yvonne DiCarlo, when she said, can that boy foxtrot, that she was going to use a very different word starting with F. And that was funny. However, every time she came around to that, you didn't laugh as much because you had heard the joke already. It was a one joke song. However, there were terrific lyrics in it. But who needs Albert Schweitzer when the lights are low? An imitation Hitler, but with Littler charm. I mean, those are great rhymes. And I remember the phone call from my friend Richard Norton, who said, they're dropping Foxtrot. They're putting in a new song. I said, what's he going to write that's going to be better than that? Well, he showed me. Before the parade passes by, wasn't in Hello, Dolly, when they were in Detroit. It ended with a song called A Penny in My Pocket, which if you saw the recent Bet Middle Revival, you heard that song beginning the second act. They put it back in just to give David Hyde Pierce something more to do because Van Degel is not a big role. In fact, that year of the Tonys for Hello, Dolly, I'm talking about 1964, David Burns wasn't nominated, virtually everybody else was, because it's a small party. He only has one song, really. It takes a woman, and that's it. So anyway, at the end of Act One, Van Degelder originally told us how he made his money. And in fact, they brought on 106 props to show how wealthy he was. 106 props. And as Jerry Herman said to me, but we learned, they didn't want to know about Van Degelder. They wanted to know about her. And so as a result, we had to replace that. And Gawa Champion went to David Merrick's no, we got to replace that number. He said, I bought 106 props and you're going to throw them all out? Well, it was all for the best. I mean, he made that money back and then some because Dolly, of course, was until 42nd Street, his longest running show, and by far for that matter. So those two are really the songs that come to mind immediately as tremendous songs that were written out of town. Oklahoma was written out of town, the title song. There are a lot of them, and I think Sheldon has a point when he says, when you know who you're writing for, it makes a big difference. And certainly Sondheim always echoed that. He always said he wanted to see the people in action playing those roles and then write for them, which is why he procrastinated so much. Sometimes. Well, yes, that's true, too. And as someone who's from Boston, who was at the very first performance of Company, saw Follies during the run, not at first performance, very first performance of A Little Night Music, because after Company and Follies, who could wait for a second performance? Every human being I knew who cared about musicals was there that night, January 20th, 1973. The next one was Pacific Overtures in Boston, which I saw not on opening night, but during the run. Ironically, that's when I moved to New York, and that's when he stopped going to Boston. I'd like to think that's why he's, well, you know, Peter's not there anymore. He's not going to give us his opinion, so why bother going to Boston? As a result, I saw those guys, Prince and Sondheim, make the fewest moves of all the shows I used to see in tryout. I mean, I used to go to all the tryouts from I Can Get a Few Wholesale, How Now Dow Jones, the Darling of the Day tryout, which was called Married Alive then. Anytime there was a tryout, I was there. What I noticed was a lot of people made changes that weren't significantly better or didn't help the show that much. Prince and Sondheim made the fewest changes 
changes, but made them count the most. Those guys really knew what they were doing. They really did. That is its own art in a it way. It sure is. It sure is. And you know, I remember talking to Ellen Fitzhugh, who wrote a wonderful new song for Grind. I Get Myself Out, I think is the name of it. And she said to me, you don't know what it's like to be in a hotel room where they say, go write a new song and you have to have it by morning. That's why Harvey Smith and Tom Jones, once David Merrick optioned 110 in the shade, you know the story. I do. I was just going to, I was so glad you brought it up. Go ahead. You tell it. <laughs> no, go ahead. You tell it. You're the guest. All right, fine. Uh, so when the show was optioned, they said, listen, you know, we have all this time before we go into rehearsal. Let's write some new songs. Therefore, when we get to Boston, they say, you got to have a new song tomorrow morning. We'll go to our hotel room. We'll watch TV. And the next day we'll say, here's our new song because we already wrote it and we won't have the pressure. I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. When you know you're going to have a show produced, use the time. Don't just sit back and tell people, ah, I'm going to have my show produced. That's what most people do. No, work. Work now so you won't have to work later. Yeah, Jones and Smith told me that they had five songs written for every slot in the show. Yeah, yeah. They told me that too. Yeah, really quite amazing. And those are the smart ones. Yeah, amazing. You know, a lot of people say, well, what does it matter? What's 110 in the shade? It's not that successful a show. I maintain the title is the problem. I'm totally with you. And you talk about that in the book. Yeah, but in those days, it was very important for musicals to have new titles to show we've got something brand new here. I mean, notice it's going to be a musical of Some Like It Hot this season called Some Like It Hot. In 1972, there was a musical of Some Like It Hot called Sugar. They didn't want to call it Some Like It Hot because people would say, oh, yeah. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Okay. But now it's considered an asset rather than a liability. If they had called it The Rainmaker, which indeed was the name of the original play and movie, I think they would have done a lot better. Because it's not about the heat. It's about the two people involved. The girl who thinks she's going to be an old maid now and forever. And by the end of the show, two guys water. Come with me, Lizzie. Stay with me, Lizzie. Come with me, Lizzie. And we is music the sun in the morning is music and sleeping together out under the skies being alive till you die wonderful music traveling music lizzie come on and come with me That's terrific. It should have had a different name. Even Lizzie and Starbuck would have been a great name for the show, but not 110 in the shade. Absolutely. It's such a great score. It really and it is. reaches a fantastic climax, which you also reference in the book, that moment where her father gets to say to her, what does she say, Papa, what should I do? Mm-hmm. And his response is... Whatever you choose, Lizzie, you've been asked. You can never say again that you haven't been asked. And that's really the wonderful thing about it. Oh, Pop, Pop, what will I do? Whatever you do, Lizzie, remember you've been asked. You don't ever have to go through life a woman who ain't been asked. Oh, I'm getting chills even thinking about it. My goosebumps are as big as moose bumps. And I love that feeling when you get the chill up your spine that extends to your shoulders and your head. It's wonderful when that happens in a musical. It's a moment of sheer theatricality that is just so satisfying. You have a chapter about the cast albums, about the recordings of these musicals, and you have a chapter about the movie versions, which is mm-hmm. often the most contentious discussion that people have. What's the best film version of a musical? And where did you come down on that? Well, you know, I really have to admire Cabaret tremendously because it was reinvented. A lot of people said, you know, they really were gutsy there by saying at the end of If You Could See It Through My Eyes, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. 
because that was the original lyric in Boston. So many people complained that they changed it to she isn't a misguided at all. And people say, isn't this something? They didn't use misguided in the movie. They couldn't have because that whole idea of misguided was dropped. It was a song in the original show. It wasn't in the movie. And I remember watching the movie back in 1972 at the Gary Theater in Boston. God rest its soul. It doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, watching the movie and I got what was happening. All the songs were going to be diegetic, meaning they were songs that were actually performed in a nightclub. People knew they were singing as a opposed to in musicals where people don't know they're singing, so to speak. I mean, they just burst into song because they're so excited or moved that they have to sing. But anyway, suddenly there's a scene of Liza Minnelli in profile and she starts singing, Maybe This Time. Maybe this time I'll be lucky Maybe this time he'll stay and I thought, oh, I'm wrong. It's not going to be just diegetic songs. There she is singing in her uh, room. Maybe this time, for the first time, love won't hurry away. And then you see that she's actually in the nightclub. So I was right. thrilled that they went with that concept. He will I'll be home at last Not a loser anymore Like the last time and the time before Joel Gray told me he was furious when they made him change um, She Wouldn't Look Jewish at All because it's a powerful line, God knows, but it told the truth and it should have stayed in there. And they just were afraid it was going to offend people. People wouldn't understand the irony of it or the oh, satire yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, so many people miss, well, this sounds self-aggrandizing too, and I'm sorry about that, but I always get upset when people say, oh, baby, it's cold outside. The Oscar-winning song by Frank Lesser is about date rape, and isn't it terrible when she sings, say, what's in this drink? You know, that he put liquor in her drink. He didn't put liquor in her drink at all. What's happening is she is looking for an excuse to say that you've drugged me because now I'm going to go off with you and we're going to have fun. She's pretending. She knows very well there's nothing in that drink. So yes, things like that do uh, tend to bother me a great deal. Finian's Rainbow, the whole thing about a guy who's turned black and people saying, oh, that's so racist. What they're doing is saying, if you were in this person's shoes and you were a black person, you'd see the world quite differently. That's what Finian's Rainbow does. And I'm sorry that a lot of people don't see it that way. Your last chapters are all about your pet peeves. What are the things that drive you crazy about musicals? Well, I hate when somebody calls an original cast album a soundtrack. A lot of people think they're one and the same, and they're not. And it's funny, at 16 years old, I figured this out, because there I was in a record store, and I had two different albums of The King and I in my hand. Yeah, the guy was the same, the women were different, and one said original cast album, and one said soundtrack. Oh, I get it. This is from the movie, because Movies have a track of sound. And that's when I figured it out. And I don't understand why people don't understand that. And it's such a simple thing to me. And, you know, now a lot of people lobby for the fact saying, ah, what's the difference? And while I agree that if you go into the dictionary, you will find different meanings for words. I don't think we have to get used to using the term soundtrack when it's an original cast album. There is a difference and we should deal with the differentiation. I think that's really a very important thing. So I don't really understand that at all, why people can't get it since at a tender age I could. So. So 
that's that's really quite a bit. I'm with you, Peter, but I'm afraid I've given up. I understand. (laughs) I understand that people have given up, but I still correct people when they do it. I have to say, maybe they're just being polite to me, but most of the people are very good about it and say, oh, is that right? Oh, okay. All right. I'm not saying that they changed their minds. I'm not saying the five minutes later, they're not saying I got the soundtrack to Hamilton, but nevertheless, I'm going to keep trying. So that's the difference between you and me. Yeah. (laughs) And what else bothers you? Well, it's not so much bothers me as much as I'm amazed that my favorite thing has been classified as a Christmas song. I mean, really, I mean, if you got raindrops on roses or whiskers on kittens under the tree, wouldn't you be a little disappointed? Doorknobs, those aren't good gifts. I don't know how that became a Christmas song. So that strikes me as more strange. I'm not saying I lose sleep over this, but the thing that really bothers me is the term critic. Now, here on 47th Street here in New York is the Diamond District. And if you have a diamond, you bring it in the store and you say to the guy, is this worth anything? And he will tell you if it's good or bad. And he is called an appraiser. Why isn't he called a critic? Why am I called a critic and he isn't? Why aren't I called an appraiser? And I like the term appraiser because it has the word praise in it. And frankly, I've gotten in trouble for this, but I tend to give good reviews to shows that I don't like. That sounds odd, but I'm very influenced by Walter Kerr, who one time wrote, sometimes I read my review in the morning and I wish the show were as good as I made it sound. And I understand that because we go all the time to the theater. I mean, one year I went 412 times, and I mean that because between matinees and producers saying, "Uh, would you come to our workshop, see what you think? You know, 412 times. And that's not normal. I'm sure it's not, but it's fine with me. You know, I love going. I always believe that there's something that's going to impress me that has never impressed me before. But to your point, you're seeing it in a way that is not typical of the average person. Right. The Theater League some years ago did a survey and found out that a heavy theater goer, a heavy theater goer, goes to Broadway four times a year. And frankly, considering how prices have escalated, I bet it's down to one or two. But nevertheless, I see everything. And so as a result, it's easy to get jaded. And I don't look at it from what I really think as much as what I think the audience would think. That's very important to me. I want to be a theatrical matchmaker. And when I see a show, I say, okay, who is this for? Let me get that audience and this show and bring them together. Why should a show not run because I don't like it? What does it have to do with me? I'm there to let people know what they would enjoy. That's very important to me. I gave a young critic hell because one year he was reviewing Christmas shows and there were four Christmas shows that year. Maybe Christmas Story, Elf, A Christmas Carol Musical, The Grinch. Maybe those were the four. But anyway, for one of the reviews, he wrote a review that said, Dear Santa, my wish for Christmas. Can you stop these Christmas musicals? I'm sick of them. What does it have to do with you? Tell the people which is the best one. They're only going to go to one, especially a Christmas show as a family show. You know, mom, dad, sisters, and brother. That's a lot of money to put out. Tell them which one they think they'll enjoy the most. That's what your job is. And you get in free, you know, so I mean, what's the problem? So I really did give him help. I remember going to a musical in New Jersey in 1994 that I didn't much like at all. Why? I had nothing in common with it. It was about dating. At that point, I had been with my girlfriend about 16 years. No, we were very happy. We didn't have any problem. We didn't go to Singles Bar. These people in the show did. We didn't worry about where our next relationship was coming from. We were set. But boy, did that audience love it. And I wrote, the audience threw back their heads and laughter so much that they're going to have to be fitted with whiplash collars today. The next day, I answered the phone, Peter Felicia. You didn't like it, did you? It was the guy who ran the theater. I said, no, Jim, I didn't. He said, no, but thank you for that review. It's a money review. We've sent it to producers in New York. A lot are coming. The show moved to New York, ran 12 years. I love you, you're perfect, now change. 
The Star Ledger was the big paper, and it had the biggest circulation. I dare say that if I had panned it, it might have died there in New Jersey, and that would be terrible, because this show obviously brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, and that's what should happen. And again, the reason I didn't respond to it is not that it was bad work. It was just that it had nothing in common with me. So why should it suffer because it had nothing in common with me? I think that's a fantastic example. And think of all the jobs that it created in that long run off-Broadway. And it gave people credit so they could use to get their next job. They got experience. So I'm delighted that it certainly had the success it had under the circumstances. I don't care if I like a show or not. We're consumer reporters in a strange sort of way. I look at it that way and there's plenty of time to rave about shows when you really do like them. And that's a great deal of fun. I'd much rather write a rave review than a pan. I find it much more fun to do that. But I can't say that all my brother wizards feel the same way. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that might be a minority opinion because what critics as opposed to appraisers get remembered for Mm -hmm. are their nasty reviews. Absolutely true. And I certainly put in the book five that struck me as funny, even though obviously people didn't profit from them. I mean, imagine you've written the musical Buttrio Square. You've written the musical Carnival in Flanders. You've written the musical Hit the Trail. None of them ran past a week. And you're just getting over it. It's been a few years now. And there's Walter Kerr in his review of My Fair Lady saying, this show was so good by the end of the first act that if you invited the authors of Buttrio Square, Carnival in Flanders, and Hit the Trail to come in and write the rest of it, you couldn't have stopped it. Oh, does it ever end? You know, I mean, these poor souls, I felt so bad for them that they had to read that and be reminded that they had failed. Yeah, you can be cruel. I've been cruel. Yes, I have. You know, because you come up with a line you just think is too delicious not to use. You do succumb to that and you do wind up using it. Yes, I'm guilty of that as well. But I'd like to think I'm not as guilty as many other. Well, we've all been guilty of it because as you also bring up in the book, in your section about the most derogatory nicknames for Broadway musicals. I remember those days. Most of that happened during the 80s and the 90s when those would spread around through the theater community as, oh, did you hear it? taking some delight in the next big Broadway flop, which is not a noble sentiment, but those names are hard to forget. Well, yeah, I mean, Dance a Little Closer, which ran all of one night, despite having very good credits. Charles Strauss and Alan J. Lerner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really good guys. I mean, the guys who wrote My Fair Lady and Camelot, teaming with the guy who wrote Bye Bye Birdie, Claus and Annie. Yeah, one night, you know, and of course, Dance a Little Closer was called Close a Little Faster. But when you say the 80s, I remember the first time I ever heard one of these derogatory names was in the 60s when Camelot was referred to as Camel Snot. It's been done now and forever and will continue to be done now and forever because people like to do that. Jelly's Last Jam was produced around the same time as The Red Shoes. The Red Shoes was Julie Stein's musical and it was nicknamed Julie's Last Jam because it would be his last Broadway musical. Which is really sad, because I mean, here's a guy who gave Gypsy and Funny Girl to Broadway and plenty of other hits too, Gentlemen for a Blondes, Bells are Ringing. He deserved better than that. I'm sorry to end on the negative note. I may <laughs> snip that out. We'll see. Or, or I'll flip it around and end with the positive side of Peter Felicia. Thank you so much for being my guest today on Broadway Nation. And tell us again the name of this book. The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements. Available in fine bookstores everywhere if you can find a fine bookstore anywhere. <laughs> and that's what Amazon is for. And do you have any book events coming up that people could find you at? Yeah, at the 18th of the month, I'm going to be at the Drama Bookshop. I'm going to be interviewed by Ken Bloom, a dear friend who is most famous for his 101 Broadway musical books that he co-wrote, a wonderful coffee table book with uh, a lot of pictures. And he had his fair share of debates, disputes, and disagreements on the 101 shows that he picked. Are you kidding? You didn't put in blah, blah, blah. It'll always happen because we all have our favorites and we all have our non-favorites. So that's the way it works. But yes, 730 at the Drama Bookshop. 18th of October. 18th of October. 
over. Be here right. before we know it. I'm going to be in New York that week, so maybe I'll see you there. Maybe you'll see you there. Good. Okay. I hope so. I'd love to shake hands with you. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. I can't quite believe that we've just met, that we've spoken so few words, and yet we speak the same language. We feel the same way. If you enjoy this podcast, I feel certain that you will also enjoy joining our Broadway Nation Facebook group, where you'll find daily postings of images, videos, articles, and links that relate to and enhance each and every episode. Just Google Broadway Nation Facebook group and join the more than 2,000 other fans of Broadway Nation. It's always fun, fascinating, and informative. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. We speak the same language. We like the same people. We speak the same language. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.